Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, thank you for your, um, your birthday welcome, our birthday uh, see you last week. That was awesome when I got that. It was like crazy. Um, last Sunday was actually my birthday, and we were in Carnegie Hall for a concert with Lauren Daigle uh, on my birthday. So she was in New York for one night only in uh, Carnegie Hall, and she agreed to be there on my birthday. So so awesome. <laughs> Uh, so I thanked her for that personally. Um, but anyway, it's great to be back. And uh, uh, anyway, if it's your very first time, I want to welcome you. We're going to go into our time of teaching. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, so inside your program is green and white uh, message note sheet. If you guys are all set, I'm ready to jump in. You ready to go? Yeah. All right. God, we're just excited to be here. And that, that worship has just fired us up, that you're, you're with us, that, uh, that whatever comes, whatever is required, that you are with us, you're strengthening us, you're the one that raises the dead, gives us courage empowers us to follow you, even in the midst of difficult times. And God, today as we talk about discipleship and what it means to be a, a follower, a true disciple of yours, uh, in the midst of a culture that's, that's uh, changing rapidly, uh, storm clouds coming, we pray, God, that you would just empower us to, to listen and hear the voice of your spirit today as we uh, give us the courage to follow. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in for uh, the last couple of months. Uh, for those of you who are brand new, it's called Set Piercing the Darkness, and uh, it's actually part of a much longer series. Uh, it's actually like the fourth mini-series in a longer series called Sent that, uh, that covers the, the story of the early movement of Jesus, uh, starting after his resurrection in the next uh, about 30 years as the movement uh, spreads across the Roman Empire as kind of documented in the New Testament book of Acts. And so uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, we've been watching as one of the key characters in the story, kind of the hero of, of the story, uh, a man named Paul, uh, Apostle Paul, has been traveling with a group of eight friends, uh, colleagues, fellow Christ followers, and they're, uh, they're tra- taking a long journey to Jerusalem, where they're get- when they're going to get there, they're going to deliver a large financial offering that they've collected from these churches that the Apostle Paul has started around the Roman Empire, and uh, they've, they've made this large gift to give to the poor Jewish Christ followers in Jerusalem both as an act of love just to help them out through a very hard time, but also as a way of building bridges between Gentile churches and the, the mother church, the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem. So uh, last week, if you were here, uh, we watched, uh, 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 Dre did a great job. It's one of my favorite passages really in the New Testament um, is in, in Acts uh, chapter 20, where uh, the apostle Paul met with the leaders of the church of uh, Ephesus, where he spent three years, and he called them to Miletus' seaport and gave them a final charge. And part of that charge was he knew he would never see them again. Now, he spent three years there. He loved them. They loved him. And so it's a very sad parting. It was a hard goodbye. Um, but it was a very powerful charge that he gave them. So we're going to be picking up the story there today. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to chapter 21 of Acts. And we're going to pick it up at verse 1. Uh, if you've got your apps, go ahead and turn those on. And there on your note sheet, you have a section called Discipleship 101, Into the Danger. And just a a fascinating passage today uh, as Paul is going to head with his team towards Jerusalem, very aware that he's heading into harm's way. And so it starts off in verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 1, after we had torn ourselves away from them. And so they're very close, these leaders that he'd been sharing Jesus with and final charge. It was a hard parting. Uh, we put out to sea, and they began to sail uh, sailed straight to Kos. Now, we're going to need our maps today, so let's, let's put our maps. Let's get oriented. 
So I need you to find, first of all, I need you to find Miletus. That's where the story starts. It's in the right kind of almost dead center in your map. And what we're going to be doing today is following the dotted line all the way down to Jerusalem. And so he's going to be sailing. Now, in ancient times, and this is interesting, uh, most of us probably wouldn't know this, but in ancient times, there were no like passenger cruises. Um, there wasn't like, uh, that's like there were just, there were like freighters. They're, they're like, uh, the ships were working ships. And so you just kind of pay to go along for the ride. Um, and so these ships typically would be smaller ships and they would um, skirt the edge of the land as much as possible. Because anytime you cross over open sea, very dangerous. Uh, there were times when you had to do that. Then you would transfer to a larger ship and that's what's going to happen. Um, so we're going to watch as they go down the coast, and basically you'd, you'd skirt the coast during the day, you'd come into port at night and spend the night there so it'd be safer, um, and so he's going to be like bouncing down the coast. Now this first uh, location, it says they went to Kos, so that's not on your map. All the other ones will be on your map. Just couldn't find a, uh, a map with Kos in it. Anyway, so here we go. So they put out to sea, they sailed straight to Kos, and the next day we went to Rhodes, you can see that on your map, the island, and from there over back to the mainland to Patera, and then we found a ship. Now, so now they're going to have to cross over open sea, and they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna sail about four or 500 miles over open ocean now, so they need to get on a bigger ship. And so they're going to cross over to Phoenicia, uh, and they, they went on board and they set sail. So after sighting Cyprus, you see that on your map, this major island, so if you're a sailor in ancient times, uh, something like Cyprus was a great, you want to make sure we're on track, you know, so you see that, like that's a very important landmark. So we passed to the south of it, we went on to Syria, that's the Roman province, and we landed at Tyre, you can see that, major ancient city, seaport, and the ship now is going to unload its cargo. So it's going to take some time, I mean, they don't have like, you know, cranes and things like that. So this is going to take some time, so they're going to end up spending like a week there. And what they're going to do is they're going to kind of search out and see if there are any Christ followers there that they can connect with. And so we sought out, in verse 4, it says, we sought out the whom? Great. Okay, that's like four of you. That was excellent. <laughs> uh, so I take one week off of what happens. Like, <laughs> all right, let's show you. We sought out the what? Yeah, the, the disciples, right? So uh, I want to point this out, that in the early movement of Jesus, uh, both in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, Followers of Jesus are called what? Disciple. We've talked about them before. The reason I pointed out is it's become very important later on today. But we're going to see today that in this one, just one random passage we're going through, four times that Jesus' followers are called disciples. Okay, so I just want to point that as we go through. And so we, we sought out the disciples. So they're going to say, hey, there's got to be some Jesus followers here. And so they're going to go. They're going to connect. And how awesome would this be to have the Apostle Paul you know, come to your church and like, hey, I'm just in town for a week and can we hang out? And so think of the stories that not only he would tell, but all these eight men who are representatives of these churches that have been started throughout the Roman Empire, the stories that they would tell about the movement of Jesus that it's spreading across the empire. And so uh, anyway, uh, something really interesting happens there. It says, we sought out the disciples, we stayed with them for seven days, but then through the Spirit, so this is probably a prophetic word, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now catch this, Paul has been planning to go to Jerusalem for at least two years. Paul has been going from church after church that he planted and raising financial support to bring to the Jews in Jerusalem. 
He is, this is a long-term plan, and yet through the Spirit, they're saying, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. So what's going on is that the Holy Spirit is bringing them in on this, that Paul is heading into harm's way. The interesting thing is, this was not news to Paul. He knew this. In fact, if you were here last week, in chapter 20, when he met with the elders from Ephesus at Miletus, there in your note sheet, this is what it says. This is what he said last week when he was talking to those leaders. He said, compelled by the Spirit. Now catch that. In the Greek, what it literally says, it says bound by the Spirit, as if you're like a, being a prisoner bound and being led by the Spirit. And so Paul is feeling very clear the Holy Spirit is leading him to Jerusalem, but he says, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So what seems to be happening is that here in Tyre, as he meets with these believers, that as they're worshiping together, the Holy Spirit is giving a prophetic word to one of the prophets in the congregation that Paul is heading into harm's way. And their natural response is like, don't go. Right? That's what we our natural response. But Paul has the completely opposite. He's like, I know I'm going into harm's way. The Spirit's leading me into harm's way. So what we've seen throughout this series is that oftentimes in our life, if we're listening and following the Spirit, He will lead us into harm's way. He will lead us into the danger because it's there in the danger He's going to meet us. It's in the danger He's going to transform us. It's in the danger that, I mean, that, that He is going to use us for the greatest impact for His kingdom. And what we're going to see today is the closer that Paul gets to Jerusalem, the clearer the Spirit is going to give the warnings. And so, anyway, they, they share that with him. And, um, and then in verse 5, when it's time to leave, we left and they, we continued on our way. And all of them, and it's a very touching picture here, the, the wives, the kids, they, they went, out of us, went out with us to the city. And on the beach there, by the, by the shore, by the ship, uh, they all knelt down and just had a time of prayer, prayer for Paul, his, his calling, his life, his mission, his safety. And so after we said goodbye, then we, uh, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home, all right? So now we're going to keep on going, and we go from Tyre just down one day's sail to Ptolemais. You can see it on your map. And uh, once again, we greet some brothers and sisters, you know, pull in there for the night. We stay with them just for a day. And then leaving the next day, we reach Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is a major Roman, uh, Roman city. This is a huge harbor, one of the largest harbors in the Roman Empire, built by Herod the Great. We've talked about Caesarea before, not going to go into a great detail. Those of you who've been to Israel, remember this is a place where there is the, the big theater that's still used today, the Hippodrome, the foundations of the palace of Herod the Great that go out in the sea. Um, but what, what's important about Caesarea for you to catch, and this is going to become real important later on in Acts, is that Caesarea was the seat of government for the Roman Empire in the province of Judea. So like if we were saying calling California a province, the seat of government would be Sacramento. That's where the governor's at. In the same way, the province of Judea was where, where Jerusalem was. Jerusalem's not the, the, the uh, center of Roman government. Caesarea is at 65 miles away. So this is like where Pontius Pilate, you know, 25 years earlier, uh, when he uh, kind of presided over the, the trial of Jesus, this is where we, he would normally be working out of, would be Caesarea. In fact, we've even found archaeological uh, findings with the name Pontius Pilate on it in Caesarea. Uh, and so uh, it's the center of the Roman government. And so while he's there, um, we're going we're gonna, to uh, meet a couple old friends from Acts. Now, some of you were with us when we started this series back in 63. And, um, 
And uh, you will remember way back in chapter 6, uh, two, two guys, back in chapter 6, we met a man named Philip. Uh, Philip was one of the seven leaders that were chosen to oversee the ministry, food distribution ministry to the widows uh, in, back in chapter 7. And then you may remember that after that, God began to reveal other gifts in his life, gifts of healing, gifts of evangelism, and he used them in a lot of ways. But the last time we saw Philip was in chapter 8 of Acts. And uh, he was there, remember he shared Jesus with an Ethiopian eunuch uh, out in the desert, and then afterwards the Spirit took him away and he began sharing Jesus up the coast until he got to Caesarea. So that was like over 20 years ago, and yet here he is in Caesarea. He may have settled down there. He's had a family. His wife is not mentioned. We don't know if she's passed away now or whatever, but he's got four grown daughters uh, they all have the gift of prophecy. So we're going to meet, we're going to be to see Philip again. The other person that we're going to meet um, is a man that we met in chapter 11. He was also a prophet. His name was Agabus. You may remember he was from Jerusalem, made the trip 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch, which was Paul's home church. And when he came there, he made a big prophecy that there was a famine that was going to come over the whole world. Uh, remember, it came in the, in, the, in the time of the Emperor Claudius, Roman Emperor Claudius. And as a result of that, the church of Antioch had taken a large offering for the poor Christians in Jerusalem, much like Paul is doing now. And so, um, so, Ag- so we, we've met Agabus. We're going to meet in Caesarea these two, two players that we haven't seen for a long time, haven't seen for 20 years, are coming back into the picture. So in verse uh, 8, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, and we stayed on at the house of Philip the evangelist. He was one of the seven. And he had four unmarried daughters. They all loved Jesus. And they, uh, they prophesied, all the gift of prophecy. And after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, in other words, from Jerusalem. And coming, coming over to us, he's going to act out a prophecy. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, this will be familiar to you. If not, it'll be new. But often, some of the key prophets in the Old Testament, you think Jeremiah, you think Ezekiel, you think um, uh, Isaiah, they would not just deliver verbal prophecies. From time to time, they would act out prophecies. Uh, Ezekiel may lay on his side for you know, a half year or build a, build a little kind of city of Jerusalem to illustrate what was going to happen to him. They, they, would, they would kind of act out things. And so this prophet's going to do that. What he's going to do, he's going to come, he's going to greet Paul, and there in their church service, he's going to go and he's going to take off Paul's belt. Right? It's kind of got a picture of the drama in this. Prophet comes, he takes it when you picture a belt, like, don't picture mine, right? Like, it's not a leather belt, you know, that's 32 or 34 or 36 or whatever it is. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a long piece of cloth that would be wrapped around your waist uh, uh, several times. And then inside it, you could put your wallet or traveling things. So he comes over to Paul in the midst of the church service, and he takes his belt off. And you just got to be wondering, like, what's going on here, you know? And then he proceeds to tie himself up like a prisoner. And he says, um, hey, the, the Holy Spirit says that whoever happens to own this belt, I'm not saying any names here, uh, but uh, that when he goes to Jerusalem, this is exactly what's going to happen to him. And so the information about harm's way is getting more specific. So in verse 10, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea coming to us. He took Paul's belt and he tied his own hands and feet. And he said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and they'll hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, once again, of course, Paul 
And, you know, his friends, Luke, who's writing this whole account, he's there with them, his other seven buddies that have traveled from the Roman Empire, and the church there in Caesarea, their natural response, just like yours would be, like mine would be, is, well, don't go. You know, the Holy Spirit's warning you, this is dangerous, but I want you to see Paul's response. He said, uh, and so when we heard this in verse 12, notice the we, Luke's writing this, when we heard this, uh, we and the people, we pleaded with Paul. We're begging with him not to go. And this gets really serious. In fact, what we're going to see is, is several people there actually start to break down and cry. They're, they, they love Paul. They're scared to death for his future. He's their hero. He's their leader. And, and they're actually going to break down and, and just start begging him with tears not to do this. And, uh, and this is going to break his heart. And, and I want to just do a real quick sidebar here. Um, it's not, not about what we're talking about today, but I just want to say this, that sometimes as a follower of Jesus, the hardest thing about following Jesus is not the cost to us personally, it's the cost to those that we love the most. Uh, many times when Jesus calls us to do something, it may be hard for us to do, but what makes it often the hardest is what it costs those around us. So, for example, like some of you, uh, maybe you're 18, 19, 20 years old, or maybe you're the parent of someone who's 18, 19, 20, 21, and Jesus calls you as a young person to go into share the message of Jesus uh, in a place where he's never been shared in a dangerous, maybe kind of third world or uh, kind of global world set- setting today. And you're going to have to wrestle with that. Are you willing to follow Jesus and risk your life to share the gospel But the hardest thing for you may not be saying yes. The hardest thing for you may be saying yes in spite of the fact that your parents are saying don't go. And if you're a parent, the hardest thing is to watch your child. Are you following me this? Often Jesus calls you to do something. It's what's so hard about it. It's not that what God's asking you to do. That's hard. But what's hard is that your spouse, how your spouse feels about that or your children feel about that. And so often, especially when God calls us into harm's way, this is the hardest thing, and it really kind of exposes who matters more to us. Does Jesus matter more to us, or do our parents, or a child, or our friends, or whatever? It causes us, you remember like Jesus said, no one can follow me who loves more me, uh, father, or mother, or kids, or husband, or more than. It forces a decision. And I'm just highlighting this because often we don't realize this, and then it surprises us. It's like, well, I want to obey Jesus, but my parents or my friends or my spouse or whatever, and we get confused like who we should follow in that situation because these are obviously important relationships that we love and God wants us to to love. And so the hard thing for Paul here was he says, you're breaking my heart. I'm ready to die for Jesus, but you're making this harder, you know, for me. And so... When they heard this, we and the people there, verse 12, pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm good to go. I know he's been telling me for a long time, this is dangerous. I'm good with that. I'm resigned to that. In fact, I want you to look back at chapter 20 for just a second. What he said last week, I want to kind of hit again the verse we hit earlier, but then add on to it. If you go back to verse, chapter 20, verse 22, where he was meeting with the elders from Ephesus, he said, now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns that prisons and hardship are facing me. Catch this, 
However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And so for your life and, and my life, there's a task. There's a task the Lord has given you. There's an assignment that Jesus has given you and me. We often, at this point in our life, don't even know what that full task is. But for the follower of Jesus, there's only one top priority, and that is to finish the race. That it is to complete the task, whatever it calls for. And so here's Paul, and the Holy Spirit's been telling him, danger is ahead, it's part of your calling, and he is embracing that, and he's saying, I know it's dangerous, I know it's going to be hard, but uh, this is what God has called me, I'm resigned to that, I need you to be resigned to that. And so, after they work through this, in verse 14, when he would not be dissuaded, this is 21:14 now, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up, and uh, we said, well, the Lord's will be done. Maybe God's bigger than what we're thinking here. And so after this, then we started on our way up to Jerusalem. So this is a 65-mile journey. Um, it'd take three days, uh, or, uh, three days on foot, two days by horseback. We're not sure which they did. Uh, but some of the what? Disciples, good. I'll try it again. Some of the disciples, notice that again, the, the, the name that for followers of Jesus, from Caesarea, they accompanied us, uh, very likely because they were afraid of the danger. They're very much aware that, that um, marching into Jerusalem, you're, you're marching into uh, a, a tinderbox. You're marching into an explosive situation for reasons we will learn more of next week. But they're all very aware of the danger and so some are even accompanying him, and they bring us to the home of Manasin, where we're going to stay. And so this was sort of a safe house, someone who'd agreed to, to keep Paul in spite of the danger. He was a man from Cyprus, from the island. That's where Barnabas was from. You remember Barnabas? And he was one of the early what? Good, early. Wake up. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to the service. That is awesome. So he was one of the early What? disciples. Yeah, so I just want to point that out because it's going to become very important. So, so here's what's going to happen. What we're seeing today is Paul makes his final journey to Jerusalem. He's been to Jerusalem in the book of Acts several times. We've watched it. This is his last trip to Jerusalem. He is going in full awareness. He is marching into the lion's den. He is very clear on that. Um, and, and so next week, we're going to see what happens. And we're going to, next week, we're going to see how these prophecies that have been delivered along the way are going to be fulfilled very powerfully. Um, but for today, uh, what I want to do is I want to focus on these warnings that the Holy Spirit is giving Paul, and more importantly, on his response to the warnings, because in his response to the warnings, uh, I think we're, uh, uh, Luke is going to help us to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, All right? So there in your note sheet... I have a section that's called Discipleship 101, Counting the Cost, and I want to hit just a couple points today, a couple of big picture principles, and come back and ask one uh, very kind of penetrating, focused, uh, hard-hitting question. I got to tell you, fasten your seatbelts, because today is going to be a challenging message. I was talking with one of the, the uh, our, our band leaders uh, backstage, and one of the, the vocalists, was one of, she was saying like, man, I listened to the message, that was a hard message, and she said, that, I was surprised, like, no one left, and, uh, and, and, and uh, one of our, our guitar players, he said, uh, that's the difference between the audience and a congregation, 
audiences leave, congregations stay. Uh, and uh, and I, I said, that's what I love about this church. Just love you. you tell them the truth, they'll, they'll receive it. They will receive it. They always have. And, um, and so we're going to have some hard things today. Uh, it's going to be a challenging message. Um, but I want to start with kind of two big picture principles and then come back one really important, uh, tough, difficult question. And so uh, here we go. The, the first principle is going to sound almost obvious. It's going to sound almost redundant. Uh, it's going to sound like, uh, why do we come to church? But um, just hang with me because it actually, Luke is saying something extremely important today that we're going to talk about. So, so number one is that Jesus calls us to follow him. Uh, first thing I think that Luke wants us to understand as he writes us today is that as a follower uh, of Jesus, when Jesus calls us, he calls us to follow him. Now you say, well, isn't that obvious? I mean, that's what we say every week. It's what we, we call ourselves here at Rocky Beach, Christ followers. Isn't it obvious that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be a Christ follower? I mean, it's kind of obvious, and I, I get that, but Luke is telling us something very profound today, and he's using the Apostle Paul to get at it. And to understand this, you have to understand that for Luke, and all scholars would agree on this, for Luke, that um, Paul is his hero. Uh, Paul is the hero of Acts. Uh, the first part of Acts, Peter is the hero. Second part of Acts, Paul is the hero. Um, and by hero, what I mean is he's, that Paul is the model Christ follower. You remember what uh, Paul would, would write in uh, 1 Corinthians 11? He'll say, follow me as I follow Christ. And so in Acts, um, Luke is laying out for us, in laying out Paul's life, one of his agendas is to help us to look, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Like, so here's a, a leader for us that is modeling for us uh, what it looks like to follow Jesus. And what we see in this passage is that it seems very clear that this is Paul's final visit to Jerusalem. And that as Luke describes Paul's final trip to Jerusalem, in many ways it parallels Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem in volume one of Luke. Now, I want to go back in time to when we started this series, and I know a lot of you weren't here then, but when we started this series in Acts, one of the things I would say every week, because it was going to be so important for our future, was that the book of Acts is volume two and a two-volume set. Remember I'd say that? So volume one is the Gospel of Luke, where Luke describes the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. Volume 2 is about, after the ascension, the movement of Jesus, how it spreads across the Roman Empire. And what I would tell you every week is that Luke has written these two volumes. They're designed to be read together, and he assumes that when you're reading Volume 2, you've read Volume 1, much like a popular TV show, like a drama, like, say, 24 or Lost or something, when you're watching season two, the, 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 the writers assume you've seen season one. They're building on that. There's certain backstory you need to understand to fully engage with season two. And so I would say that every week because there would be certain times where that understanding that becomes very important in understanding season two. And this is one of those times. This is one of those times. Because if you, had, if you had just sat down and read volume one and volume two together, Luke and Acts together, and it would just take you a few hours to do that, that I think the, this would jump out at you. It would be obvious to you how the story of Jesus and his final trip to Jerusalem in season one, how Paul's trip 
his final trip to Jerusalem in season two parallels. And it's almost like Luke is showing us how the student has become like the master. And so think with me, in, in volume one, G, the hero of the story is Jesus, right? The main character of Luke is Jesus. The main character, especially in the second half or second two-thirds of Acts, is, is Paul. And in both cases, these main characters of the story are traveling to the ancient city of Jerusalem as sort of the final journey of their life. And when they get there, both of them are compelled by the Spirit. Both of them are very clear the Holy Spirit is leading them. And we saw it, we'd see in volume one with Jesus and volume two. And in both cases, they're very clear they're marching into harm's way. And in both cases, they are sharing that with the, their, their travelers that they're going with. And in both cases, the travelers are trying to keep them from going. And in both cases, when they finally get to Jerusalem, they run into a problem with the Jewish authorities. And in both cases, the Jewish authorities turning more to the Roman authorities. So the only difference is how this story ends, which of course is an important story, that uh, important difference that Jesus is arrested and executed and then rise for our sins. Paul is not going to be executed. He's going to be arrested and imprisoned. But as you put these two volumes together, it seems clear that Luke is painting a picture and showing how the model Christ follower, the model disciple, how the disciple is becoming like the master in a very literal way. Now, this is an interesting thing. Because in American culture, American Christianity, I think we miss this. We have blessed to be, to be part of a culture that for so long, most of us have had to suffer so little for Christ, that as a result of that, we've kind of become blind to the obvious when we read Scripture. And so when we read Scripture, or when we talk here at Rocky Peak about following Jesus, we think of things like reading the Word, obeying what God tells us, listening and follow, maybe living a sexually pure life, living lives of integrity, uh, maybe learning how to give in a culture of generosity, maybe serving. Those are great. Those are all part of following Jesus. But what we often miss is we miss the obvious. That in the early church, when they talked about following Jesus, they assumed that following Jesus would, would include physical suffering. That Jesus went to the cross. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to take our cross, and it's going to cost us physically. There's going to be physical, uh, economic, there's going to be sociological, there's going to be hardship that comes with and they kind of And so what happens is as, as American Christ followers, we have these weird glasses on, and we put them on, and it just kind of blurs that out because it's not part of our experience. But today, what we want to do is take off those lenses and see how the early church spoke to it. I think it's very important at this point in our culture that we do. And so what, what Luke is doing is he seems to be showing how Paul is modeling for us what it means to follow Jesus in a very literal way. Uh, and this is, is really interesting because this is why I pointed out this word disciple. Now we've talked about this before in this series, but it's been a while. It's been two or three months, I think. But the reason I pointed out today, this is what the normal word for a Christ follower was in the New Testament, a disciple. Uh, it shows up all the time. Um, we saw it today. This is not a special passage. It's just a random passage. But four times today, 
we see the word disciple. The disciples, they went to Tyre. They stayed with the disciples for seven days. They met with the disciples here. The uh, disciples said this. This guy was an early disciple. It's just a name for a Christ follower. And uh, you may remember this, but the name, the word disciple uh, in the Greek is this word mathetes. And mathetes was an important word in Jewish culture because when you have disciples, it, it kind of speaks of the relationship between disciples and rabbis, you know, or leaders. So, for example, like uh, in the early, in, in, in Jewish culture, like Jesus wasn't the only one to have disciples. I mean, we're told the Pharisees had disciples. Uh, we're told that John the Baptist had disciples. So this was a very common concept. So when you would become a disciple of a rabbi or teacher, the idea was is that they are smarter than you, they're better than you, they're more spiritual than you, they understand life more than you. So you come under their leadership um, so that you can learn to become like them. That's the idea, that you be transformed, changed, and become like them. So Jesus talked about this in volume one of Luke. There in your note sheet, famous verse. We, we had an elders retreat this week, then the Lord really used this verse there for us. But uh, this is what Jesus said in volume one of Luke. Now, Luke is assuming we know this stuff. You know, we've read volume one. We're, we're, in, the, we're in the loop. Uh, so it says a student, and in the Greek, the word here is mathetes. It's the only time in the whole New Testament where this word is translated, a student. Um, but it's the word mathetes, a disciple. Okay? So a disciple, Jesus says, is not above his teacher. In other words, not faster, smarter, brighter. That's why you become a disciple, because the, 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 the teacher's ahead of you. Right? He says, but everyone who is fully what? Trained. trained. Let's say it again. Everyone who's fully trained. trained. You go through a training. Think of like an athletic training, right? You go through, you're trained, when you're fully trained, that you will be like the teacher, okay? So that's the whole point. This is why we often say here at Rocky Peak, the whole point of following Jesus is to be like Jesus. It comes from this verse, that Jesus assumes that to be his mathetes, we come under a training to where we go through a training process to where we become like him. And so, this is what seems to be working out here in, in Acts, is that what we're seeing is we're seeing the student, Paul, is becoming is fully trained, and now as a fully trained disciple, he is doing exactly what the master did. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus talked more about what it means to be a disciple in volume one of Luke. And remember, Luke assumes that we have read this, we know this. There in your note sheet, uh, we have a case, it, it happens fairly early in Luke, in Luke 9, where Jesus takes his men to a northern part of the country, if it's further out of kind of uh, normal Israel, above the Sea of Galilee, to a, it's a secular place called Caesarea Philippi, it's a place where it was famous for its worship of, uh, the, the worship of Caesar, uh, worship of the god Pan, it was a very pagan area. And so Jesus takes his men there, and he asks them that famous question, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then, um, and then he begins to tell them for the very first time what his destiny is. I remember they have no context for this. They have no context for a crucified Messiah. That would be an oxymoron in their context. 
And so um, he says to them, the son of man, which is his name for himself, uh, must suffer. Notice must. This is not um, must, much like Paul must go to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the leaders of the nation, by the elders, the chief priests, teachers of the law. And he must be killed and then the third day raised to life. Now, this in itself would have blown their minds. What is very common thinking to us as followers of Jesus today would have been completely outside of their scope of understanding. You know, the, the concept of a, a crucified Messiah um, would be uh, just nonsense to them. And so they have to be shaking in their boots and completely uh, disoriented at this thing. It's the first time he's told them this. But then when he, look what he says next. He said, then he said to them all, if anyone, so let's say it again, if whom? Anyone, yeah. Anyone, so that pretty much takes in all of us. If anyone would come after me, in other words, you know, follow me, be a disciple, um, that he must take up his what? His cross daily and follow me. Now, remember, this is a day and age the New Testament had not been written. No one had ever said anything like this before. So a cross to them was not a gold piece of jewelry around the neck. A cross to them was not a beautiful piece of artwork on the wall. A cross to them was the, uh, was the most painful, the most horrifying method of Roman torture and crucifixion that had been devised and kind of brought up to speed over hundreds of years to torture people for days before death to send a message, and the message was you don't mess with Rome. It's interesting, um, I was uh, last week just reading uh, a theologian uh, named N.T. Wright, and he's, uh, I was reading a huge book on Jesus, the life and times, you know, the, kind of the background of, of those times. And uh, I happened to come across this passage, it just fits so well with this weekend. I wanted to put it there, so we're going to come back to this verse in chapter 9. But right before, I want you to see this quote from, from N.T. Wright, just one of the most respected uh, kind of theologians in our world today. Uh, This is crucifixion was a powerful symbol throughout the Roman world. Um, It was not just a means of liquidating undesirables. It did so with the maximum degradation and humiliation. It said loud and clear, we are in charge here. You are our property. We can do with you what we want. It insisted coldly and brutally on the absolute sovereignty of Rome and of Caesar It told an implicit story of the uselessness of rebel recalcitrance and the ruthlessness of imperial power. It said in particular, this is what happens to rebel leaders. Now, often we miss this, but the reason Jesus was crucified historically, not theologically, but historically, the reason that Jesus was crucified was for high treason against Rome for claiming to be king. This was, you know, it's called the titulus. That was the the Latin phrase that that you put over the placard that was put over a person when they were crucified. And it was, it listed their crime. Why, so everyone would go, why why is this happening to that person? And you remember that over Jesus was put uh, the king of the Jews. This was the crime. It was the crime of high treason. And this is what Wright is talking about here. Crucifixion was a symbolic uh, it was what happens to rebel leaders. Crucifixion was a symbolic act with a clear and frightening meaning. And so, 
So I want you to catch this. When Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, I am going to Jerusalem and I am going to be executed while they're still trying to catch their breath because they have no context for even what he's talking about. He says, and if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. That would have been horrifying. Shudder. Like, what are you talking about? But then he goes on and he says, for whoever wants to save his life, and he's talking literally, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and his holy angels. And so what we're seeing here in Acts, we've seen this in Acts, haven't we? We've We've watched as in the early church that Peter and John were flogged by the religious leaders and threatened with death. Then we watched as uh, Stephen was martyred in chapter 7. We saw as the Greek persecution kicks out in chapter 8, driving all the Christ followers out of Jerusalem. We saw in chapter 12 where James, of Peter, James, and John, James was beheaded for the gospel. Peter was arrested and and uh, scheduled for uh, execution before, the, before God stepped in. We watched in chapter 14 as Paul shares with the new believers on his first missionary journey. He says, through many hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. We've watched Paul go out wherever he's go. We've watched him suffer, but not just him suffer, that all the Christ followers who come uh, to Christ, we've watched them suffer for the gospel. And here today, then, we watch Paul as kind of the model disciple marching into Jerusalem following in the literal footsteps of his leader. And what what Luke is laying out for us is this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, that we love him, that we are completely committed to him, that regardless of whatever it costs, we will carry out the task assigned to us. We will be loyal to him. We will be true to him. Uh, for the sake of his name, for the sake of his kingdom, so we finish the race that we have been given. So he's laying it out. You know, it's interesting. Um, a couple months ago, I was listening to, it's a powerful story I highly recommend. It was a fairly recent, last five or six years, a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, a, a pastor in Germany, like a young pastor in his 30s in Germany during the rise of uh, Nazi Germany and Hitler. And while most of the church was a, a, asleep at the switch and just cooperating by stages, one stage after another, compromising one stage after another to the Nazi uh, regime, uh, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the few that was taking a stand against the regime and uh, especially standing up for the Jews. And, uh, and during that time, uh, as as uh, Nazi Germany